Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. Before we kick off the show, I just wanted to take a moment to remind you that the ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is taking place in Barbados this summer. This, by default, gives all of my fellow cricket fanatics the perfect excuse to go and book a holiday to Barbados in June and experience firsthand the euphoric atmosphere at the Kensington Oval, the cricket mecca of the Caribbean. If the cricket alone isn't enough to tempt you, then let me be the one to remind you that a trip to Barbados can also include leisurely strolls along the breathtaking coastline, mouth-watering flavours of the world-class Bayesian cuisine, and, of course, plenty of rum. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados, the best place to be a cricket fan. And welcome to the following on podcast from Talk Sport. I'm John Norman, and today bringing you a special interview with a special player. We've all got these kind of players in our lives, the type that may play for a different team, but for some reason caught attention early and that you disproportionately hope does well, and one you end up privately sharing their triumphs and disappointments from afar. Today's guest is a man who's played international cricket for five years, who starred in the IPL, CPL, Big Bash and the Blast T20 tournaments, but who still sees himself as uh, almost starting out in the game. A man who was soon to be employed as a spin coach in India in the most competitive T20 league in the world at the age of 27. I'm pleased to say this week's lockdown cricket interview is with Black Caps leg spinner Ish Sodi. TP and a mask on here. Coronavirus. Please don't give me today coronavirus. I still got cricket to play coronavirus. And no, it's COVID-19. I'm sick of hearing your name on my TV screen. Isolate with me. It's not what it may seem. Avoid the six symptoms of COVID-19. Day one and day two was like kind of a dream. But now day three is upon us and this boredom's obscene. Supermarket's empty now dinner's breadsticks. Praise the Lord for internet. We watching Netflix. Watching the Netflix and the okay, Ish, uh, thanks so much for joining us on the following on podcast. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about. Career going back uh, a few years now, uh, taking in New Zealand, taking in the IPL, taking in a whole host of things. But first off, you know, what is it about that rap song? Yeah, well, mate, um, you know, obviously, like a lot of people around the world at the moment, obviously in New Zealand, we're in, in a bit of a lockdown. So, um, yeah, just trying to reconnect with things that I enjoy doing outside of the game and, um, and rap music's been, been one of them. It's helped keep me reasonably uh, busy uh, in, this, in this pretty uncertain time. So, yeah, I thought I'd put together a little rap song uh, about coronavirus and put it out to, out to the world on social media. And, and yeah, it's just uh, a little bit of fun that I've always, always kind of tinkered with growing up and uh, no, it's good to be able to reconnect with it now. 
Uh, we did a show a couple of weeks ago with Jason Holder, actually, and uh, we asked him at the end of it to to tell us his favourite tracks, and we we played them out throughout the show. So, uh, what track should we introduce you to? I mean, we'll play out the the rap song uh, that you recorded, but if there was to be one song that you're listening to at the moment, or your favourite song growing up, you know, how should this show start? Oh, without a shadow of a doubt, I've got the song in my mind. It's uh, Juicy by Biggie Smalls. It was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine. Salt and pepper and heavy D up in the limousine. Hanging pictures on my wall. Every Saturday, rap attack. You might have to do the uh, non-explicit version, which, uh, yeah, just for the viewers back home. But yeah, that's definitely the, the song that I'd like to walk out to on a cricket field. So it can be the, the podcast walkout song as well. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, um, so uh, music's always been your thing. I mean, did you did you grow up in a cricket family in a music family? Or... Sport isn't really that big in my family. I'm probably the first um, the first person to take sport reasonably seriously. Although my mum had a couple of uh, cousins that were that were wrestlers. I'm not too sure uh, to what standard they got to uh, in India. Uh, it was it was a long time ago. But yeah, my my dad's a doctor and my mum's a teacher, so I grew up around um, people that were. You know, always had their head in paperwork and things like that. So yeah, it's a little bit of a bit of an outlier. But um, yeah, I found cricket at the age of twelve. But yeah, it's I've always loved loved music. I grew up in a in a small town called Papatoitoi in in South Auckland, and and rap music was generally the preferred music of uh, of most of my peers. So I started growing up around that and started really enjoying it. Had a few freestyle battles in garages, um, you know, on on Saturday nights and things like that. So it's always been something I've enjoyed. Did you just say that your mum's uncles or your mum's cousins were wrestlers back in India? Yeah, well, they, they were wrestlers. So, like, back in, I'd say, um, you know, the 70s and 80s, they used to be competitive wrestlers. And um, it's funny, though, because, like, I, I look at myself and I'm, I stand about six foot two, six foot three, and uh, both my parents are, like, five foot seven and under. So I've always wondered where I got my height from, and that's when I asked my mum the question. I was like, you know, why are you guys so tight? Am I adopted? You know, um, and so so that that conversation led to a little bit of a history lesson about my family, and um, you know, a few of them were in, in the in the army at that stage, and a couple of them were wrestlers, and some of them stood you know six foot six, six foot seven. So uh, it's a good indication of where my height came from. Did you have the uh, the stereotypical battle with your, your your dad wanting you to to study and, and and become a doctor, and you wanted to play cricket, or, or were they completely behind whatever you decided to do? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty big stereotype, eh? Um, but, but yeah, um, might might not be surprising. But I've been asked that question before. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, I, th- I think there is there is a bit of a stereotype, um, especially uh, probably being of Indian origin, that there is a, a certain pressure for for you know, uh, especially the men in families. I think um, to to be educated, well educated, maybe become a doctor or an enger- engineer or things like that. But um, you know, I was I was really lucky that. Uh, we moved to New Zealand when I was four years old and uh, tried to immerse ourselves into the culture as best as we possibly could. And um, where my dad is a doctor, I think he found that kind of stereotypical pressure a lot when he was younger and was probably forced into medicine um, as opposed to really, really wanting to do it. So I guess moving to New Zealand was a good start for him because, you know, he could start fresh, um, ended up working in mental health, which he really enjoyed because it was more about people then about um, why kind of he reckons dissecting organs is almost objective <laughs> as opposed to talking to people about um, about their I guess mental well-being so he really enjoyed that and that was something that I started to learn as well that uh, from a young age it's really important to do what you love doing and uh, mum and dad supported that throughout and 
and thankfully I found cricket because uh, that's that's the thing that I love doing the most. Back home in the UK, a lot's made of the fact that uh, British Asian kids that you know they make up a huge percentage of people participating in in the sport. But there's a there's a real drop off as it comes to late teenage years, um, and the, the UK Asian players aren't represented in the professional game in the UK as much as the statistics suggest that they should be. Is that a similar situation here? Oh, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't know the numbers um, as such, and I couldn't really comment on it in that regard. But, but I can uh, be, I can confirm that, especially my cricket club growing up was, I'd say, ninety-five percent um, what you would call Asian. We would just say Indian, you know, um, and and yeah, there were a lot of Indians, a lot of Pakistanis that were playing playing cricket through the age groups and stuff. But but you're right, there, there does seem to be a little bit of a drop off and. And whether that does come down to maybe that stereotypical pressure of, you know, going to university or, or whether it's a cultural thing. I know for me, um, you know, growing up, for example, something really small was that we'd eat dinner at 9.30 or 10 p.m. And, um, and I don't think that, you know, helped my athleticism much at all, um, you know, growing up during that period. So uh, thankfully, when I finished school, having the support from mum and dad and also being um, you know, put into age group academies, I was able to learn those things, you know, around athleticism and nutrition and all those kind of things that, that maybe we don't really get exposed to um, if we aren't in those, uh, I guess, out of that culture a little bit. So, um, yeah, I'm not too sure why, why that's the case, um, but, but definitely does seem to be a little bit of a drop-off, I think, um, now, that you, now that you talk about it. 2015 World Cup, I was out here for that, and I found that the World Cup really captured the imagination in a way that, even in England, 2019, I don't think it came close. Of course, the final and all that. But I, what really impressed upon me when I went to Eden Park to watch the game against Australia, what a game that was, by the way, was yeah. the fact that it seemed to me that, that New Zealand were being supported by all the, all the ethnicities that make up this country. Um, mm. you know, and in a way that I don't see so much in England. You know, I wouldn't see England play India in... Uh, July in the semi-final and I was stood at the train station in Bur- in London going up to Birmingham it would have been 95% Indian uh, UK uh, Indian supporters wearing India tops mm. and I don't see that here so much it does seem that whether you are European of ancestry whether you're Pacific Island of ancestry whether you're from India of ancestry it does seem like everyone supports New Zealand and everyone wants to wear the New Zealand kit and I found that very different from the UK, but it's probably not even something you're, you've even th- thought about because why would you? Oh, no. Well, to be, to be fair, I have thought about that a little bit and, and I'm a little bit surprised that you haven't seen that um, more in our country. I think, I think especially if we're playing against um, nations other than India, um, you know, then, then all of those Indian supporters in our country and, and all the other ethnicities definitely do get behind New Zealand. You know, we're such a small country and, and we all you know, love sport and we love our, our nation. So we support it accordingly, but definitely uh, when we play against India uh, and we play at Eden Park, for example, where, because in Auckland, the Indian population um, is so vast, you get a lot of Indian supporters. And I remember speaking to a couple of the Indian guys, you know, Kohli Rahane and things like that. And they said, yeah, it does feel like a bit of a home game when you come to Eden Park. But um, I've always thought, you know, how from a you know marketing commercial point of view, we can get those same Indian fans that come out in their droves and they're, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds and 
thousands of people there that come and support them. How can we get them supporting New Zealand when, say, uh, Bangladesh is here or, um, you know, Sri Lanka's here or something like that? Mm. So it's, it's always going to be a challenge, but, um, but it's just, it just shows how much um, Indian cricket is loved. And, and um, you know, wherever they go in the world, it's a home game for them. But, yeah, you constantly want to improve and, and make sure that your fan base is, you know, obviously supporting you and you want to make, make it feel like somewhat of a home game in, in your own country. But, yeah, you just got to, you almost got to be submissive to the fact that uh, the Indians are going to have that, that kind of support wherever they go in the world. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. If your passion for travel is on par with your passion for cricket, and I have some excellent news. The ICC Men's Cricket T20 World Cup Final is being hosted in Barbados this June, which makes it the perfect destination for your summer holidays this year. To make the most of your trip, you can also experience eight matches from the series in Barbados, including England against Scotland and England against Australia. In under a month's time, you could be spending your days exploring the vibrant streets of Bridgetown, drinking rum in the sunshine and experiencing exotic Bayesian delicacies in the culinary capital of the Caribbean. There truly is something for everyone. There's no need to wait a second longer. Head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today to book the trip of a lifetime to Barbados. Truly the best place to be a cricket fan. You made your, your debut in the Plunkett Shield um, for Northern Districts. How did you find your, the transition to professional cricket? 2012 was um, the first time I played for Northern Districts in a first-class game. I would have been um, probably 19 when I signed with them and, and um, maybe 20 when I played my first game. So, um, yeah, very young. Um, looking back now, you know, it was only seven years ago and I still feel like a young cricketer now. I mean, mm. so... So in terms of being 20 years old and, and paving a way to play professional cricket, I felt, you know, looking back, um, it was a really speedy transition, even though it felt for a long time it was taking so long because, um, you know, all my career I'd played a troop cricket for Auckland and uh, I had, had a, probably about a two-year period outside of school um, where I was trying to get into the Auckland side and um, it just felt so far away. Um, and so those two years probably felt, like they were, you know, five years. And when I finally got the chance to play uh, domestic cricket professionally, um, it had felt like a long time coming. But but now, obviously, being, you know, having had the experiences that I've had as a professional cricketer um, and sitting here at 27 years old and thinking, um, you know, seven years ago feels like a really long time. And, 
you know, most cricketers tend to, you know, probably come to their prime years 30 plus. Um, it does feel like a really long time ago and I've, I can't really comprehend one, how I did it. Um, and two, uh, how long I've been actually playing for. So, uh, yeah, it was a really, really, uh, quick transition, but the one that just feels like yesterday as well. One of the things I noticed was that you made your test debut within what 12 months, 18 months of making your first class debut. I mean, you talk yeah. about things happening quickly. Do you think, do you think that happened a bit too soon for you or were you, were you ready at the time? I and mean, what, what was the mental process? How, how confident were you as a cricketer then? I think in hindsight, I would have, um, you know, definitely have thought about that a fair bit and I would have probably liked to debut a little bit later. Um, but obviously when you're 19, 20, 21 years old and you have the prospect of playing international cricket, um, you know, you're not going to, you know, turn away from it or anything like that. Um, definitely wasn't, uh, ready in terms of the, you know, international cricketer that I probably wanted to be at that stage, but uh, it was an opportunity that was amazing. And, and if you kind of look at it from, the perspective of having only played one year of, of professional cricket um, and then going straight to playing test cricket. Well, I'll put it to you and say in 2012, mid 2012, um, the only job I'd ever done was push trolleys at a, at a grocery store and play club cricket and under 19 cricket. And the following year at the same time, within a year after playing the under 19 world cup, I was playing test cricket. So yeah, it was a really, really quick transition. And uh, I'm not saying that, you know, it's a bad thing or anything like that because you know, guys like Daniel Vittori and, and Kane Williamson and things like that have become very, very successful international cricketers and they, they started at the same age. But um, I suppose when you're growing up and you see guys doing that, um, you think that, you know, it's it's not it's not easy at all, but it's achievable. Um, but then you realise as well that everyone's journey is quite different. And um, if I had it, you know, my way, I would have probably debuted a little bit later. Um, but in saying that, it's given me some great experiences and great opportunities that, have probably helped me become uh, the person and cricketer that I am today. You've, I, I noticed in your first innings, you top scored with 48. And <laughs> you, you were a thorn in England side uh, a couple of years ago, the test, uh, test over here. <laughs> Has it always been leg spin, your primary skill? And why, was, why did you choose leg spin as well at six foot two? You know, maybe, mm. uh, you know, were, were there other options? Did you start out as a batsman? Where, where did the decisions uh, lie? When did you realise that you had a, that had such a skill? Yeah, look, I, I was always probably uh, probably a batsman um, that used to dabble in a little bit of pace bowling because um, I, I was obviously a lot taller and bigger than the other kids, so I could get the ball down at a decent clip. Um, but to be fair, I started playing cricket quite late. Um, I probably had my first game of cricket at nine years old. Um, I, you know, I know a lot of people probably start at five or six or something like that. Um, and it wasn't until probably 12 years old that I actually started enjoying the game. Um, and, uh, it was probably three years of, of bowling pace and, and batting, but it wasn't until I, I had the chance to, um, be involved in an academy where Deepak Patel was the head coach. And, um, you know, at that stage he, he was a well-respected member of, of New Zealand cricket and the fact that he had bowled spin as well was really cool. And, and once he just sat us down and, and asked if anyone in the, in the group, bold spin and no one put their hand up so uh, you know I put my hand up I wanted to impress this guy that played cricket for New Zealand and obviously being a spin bowler I just you know decided to put my hand up for no you know God knows what reason um, and and he put me in a, in a in a net by myself and you know the only way that I could comprehend bowling spin was bowling a leggy and um, you know I just walked in ambled in and bowled this leggy that 
you know, went down and it drifted and then it hit the deck and then it spun. And, and from then I just, I became addicted. I thought it was such an amazing art. Um, and, and wanted to progress further. Um, I went home and, and went onto YouTube, which was going you know mad in those days and getting a leg spin. And then I found out who Shane Warne was. And I found out who Anil Kumble was and Stuart McGill and all these phenomenal leg spin bowlers. And mate, I watched it for hours and hours and hours. And then I'd go to the nets and try to replicate it for hours again. And I just love it. I, I genuinely love leg spin bowling. That's amazing. Um, of the... You, you say that age 27, you still feel like a, a new bowler or a new cricketer rather. It's almost like you're still starting out. You've, you've <laughs> played a lot of 2020 cricket for New Zealand and in the IPL and around the world. You've played a lot of 50 over cricket um, and test cricket. Is there, a, is there one that you don't feel quite the same way? Do you feel slightly, slightly down the road further in 2020 cricket when you're playing for the Black Caps than you do maybe in the test arena because you played more times? I mean... Where's the, where's the mindset set in terms of your confidence as a cricketer across all three formats? Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, if you have a fair, a fair bit more success in one format, you're probably going to tend to have more confidence in, in that. And uh, I suppose from, a, from an international perspective, I've probably had my most success in 2020 cricket and then probably followed by one-day cricket and then test cricket after that. Um, you know, being a huge purist of the game, uh, you know, I, I think test cricket is still the absolute ultimate and, um, you know, obviously being 20 years old and, and being thrust into test cricket, um, again, like, like we spoke about earlier, I don't think I was quite ready at that stage uh, to play test cricket. I'd only played 10 first-class games, um, where now I've got about, you know, 70, 75 first-class games under my belt. So I understand, one, what, what it's like to play for you know, that long. Um, and two, I probably understand myself as a person a lot better. Um, and I understand what's required uh, to be a really good test bowler a lot more now than what I perhaps did back then. So um, I'd like to think that taking those learnings into into play uh, over the past seven years of, of playing professional cricket, um, you know, a lot of spinners these days are playing, you know, well late into their late 30s and and some of them even touching 40, you know, the likes of Rangana Hirath, um, you know, comes to mind, Brad Hogg, you know, Warney was still playing, Anil Kumble was still playing. So it's still achievable. And, um, you know, while I still have the motivation to play test cricket, I see why not, you know, take the learnings from the past seven years. And then let's say for, you know, 30 onwards, whether I can forge a, a successful test career, I think um, is definitely a big goal of mine um, where I don't want to put too much pressure on it as well. Um, it's definitely something I want to achieve, but also continue with the success that I've had in the white ball formats because it's been such an enjoyable run and one that I, I hope can continue for a little bit longer. Mitchell Santner against England. I think he took the first wicket taken by a spinner um, <laughs> in about two years or something in the, in New Zealand. Uh, you know, I was chatting to Will Somerville last week actually, and it's is there a sense of frustration that the a actually Test cricket in this part of the world is being restricted? They don't play as much uh, financially. It doesn't make as much sense. There's a lot more focus in ODI and T Twenty stuff. But also the pitches, they're, they're green tops after oh, nearly, nearly every game you see. So do you feel like you're kind of battling um, battling the, the conditions and, and just the fact that you're having to play test cricket primarily in New Zealand? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, they're, they're very right. Um, bowling spin in New Zealand, especially at test cricket level, is really tough because the wickets just don't allow for it that much. And, and I think you can probably have that same conversation with a lot of English spinners. Um, 
you know, county cricket and, you know, unless the counties are producing absolute dust bowls and playing a part as a spinner is, is quite difficult and you have to be really on top of your game to, to be able to get wickets in our conditions. But in saying that in the past, let's say, you know, four or five years that I've been involved, um, spinners are right at the top of our Plunkett Shield wicket takers. Um, so, so for some reason, I find that the first class wickets in New Zealand are starting to turn um, a lot more than what they do in test cricket. And also, if you spin it around, I, I generally find bowling on day one in New Zealand a lot better as a spin bowler because there might be a little bit more moisture in the wicket, so it's a little bit tacky. Um, and as the game progresses, they generally tend to die down. So, so the bounce becomes lower. The spin, if there is any, is really, really slow. And, and being a spinner, we, we'd rather the ball go straight and go quickly than, than it spin really, really slowly. Um, and so I guess with taking all that into account, you have to have a huge amount of understanding from your captain and your teammates of how they use you as a spin bowler. And if it's going to be as an attacking weapon, then it has to be on day one and day two, which is so hard to comprehend because that's generally the best time for seeing bowlers to bowl. Um, and that's when I've had, you know, personally my, my most success is like having Daniel Flynn as my captain, understanding that I'm the aggressive weapon. And there'd be times on, on day one and sometimes day two that I'd have the ball in my hand um, with eight or nine overs gone in the innings. And, and that generally made me a lot more of a threat uh, to the opposition. But, you know, I'm not sure whether that's a ploy to use in test cricket because we obviously have the, one of the best seam bowling attacks, you know, in recent times in, in Bolt, Southie and Wagner. Um, but it's definitely something to consider if we if we want spin bowlers to play maybe more of a part in, in test cricket and over in our shores. Have you always felt the backing of the captain over the last seven years as a as an international cricketer? It seems at times the leg spin is always the one to uh, <laughs> to cop it, isn't it? I mean, partly because of the yeah. Well, as we all know, leg spinners can be expensive on occasion. The margins of error are much uh, much finer. And of course, the pitches aren't always uh, suitable. It's, you know, watching from afar, you've always been to me a player that I've enjoyed watching. I and I hope to do well, and and I think that you've been more deserving of more opportunities than maybe you've had. Do you do you feel that pressure? Does it ever feel sometimes that you know the, the leg spinner is more often than not the full guy when the team as a whole doesn't uh, produce a goods? Um, I suppose, you know, not just the leg spinner, but maybe, maybe the guy that's, you know, what, what I've been for a long time, um, you know, outside of T20 cricket, you know, almost dubbed as the second spinner type of, um, type of bowler, I guess, um, you know, you generally play your second spinner if you feel the conditions are going to be suitable. Um, are we ever going to play two spinners in New Zealand? Um, probably not. So, so you look at overseas tours and things like that, but generally those overseas tours, um, you know, include very, very good players of spin and, and that slow turn, what I speak about, mm. um, as opposed to that quick turn, which makes you, you know, a really, really venomous um, attacking option, which sometimes you get in white ball cricket and in, in those um, in those Asian conditions. But, but sometimes those those grounds are, you know, are tough. And especially being a leg spin bowler, I think if you're not, if you're not hitting the links as well as what a, a left arm spinner or, or, you know, a Nathan Lyon or something will be hitting, um, then it's, you know, you stand out a lot more than those guys, and and you can all, you know often go at you know four or five runs and over in those in those conditions as opposed to going at that two and a half like what those very very accurate finger spinners do. Um, so there's a challenge in itself. You know, um, consistency and length is really important in, in those conditions. Um, but in white ball cricket, I've always felt you know very very backed, uh, especially because I'm I'm probably playing in this new age where 
Uh, you know, most teams are looking to take wickets through the middle periods of T20 cricket and, and one-day cricket as well. Um, and obviously having the protection helps uh, for you to be really, really confident as a league spin bowler, um, having fielders on the boundary that you can always come in and try to rip the ball as hard as you can. And, and naturally, you're probably more accurate doing that anyway. So, um, yeah, that backing in, in white ball cricket has been something that I've taken um, taken really well um, and really, really enjoyed uh, from the captains that I've played under. And, and it probably allows me to play the role that I that I really enjoy playing. But uh, I would love to transfer that same skill into red ball cricket um, managing what that looks like from my perspective, from my bowling and from my, my probably tactical side of the game as well. And, and that's something that I, is a challenge for me to move forward with. If you could pick one country that, to operate your art in um, that you've experienced so far, which one do you think uh, lends itself to, uh, to leg spin more than any other? Um, by far and away, I'd have to... Oh, not far and away. I'd say there's two places uh, in the world that I, I think you get quick turn. Um, one of them Sri Lanka and, uh, and the other one I think is the Caribbean at times. Um, you know, the Caribbean, you know, they're known for obviously back in the day about their really fast bowlers and, and their ability to bounce and, and, you know, scare teams with their pace and stuff where I think the wickets are probably a lot slower than, than perhaps what they used to be back then. And, you know, I remember playing in, in Kingston and, uh, Mark Craig, was on debut and got eight wickets and man, these balls were hitting the, hitting the length and spitting up to people's shoulders and, and things like that. And that was such an enjoyable place to bowl. Uh, the same in Trinidad, it turned a fair bit in a, in a test match there. Um, obviously Guyana and the CPL is a big, big turning um, a ground as well. Uh, but then Sri Lanka as well. I find that the, the pitches in Sri Lanka, they offer turn, but they offer it quickly. You know, guys like Ranga Nahirath have, have made it such a successful place. Uh, definitely in my generation, obviously before that, it was Murali who you know could probably spin it on glass. So it doesn't really doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, those are the two places I think if I could play day in day out, take some rolled up pitches and and have them back here, then those are the places I'd go to. In terms of playing a game, because it's there's a lot of conjecture back in the UK about getting Test cricket back on the road because the broadcast deals are so massive and, and same with Premier League football, Champions League football. The whole world is trying to work out how to get sport back. And one of the ideas is that it could be played in front of uh, empty stadiums like you guys did against Australia in that one-off uh, in that ODI. In terms of playing professional sport without a crowd, you know, I've heard many sports people say, when asked the question, how, did you, how do you operate in front of 100,000 people or 50,000 people? And they say, well, you just kind of block it out after a while and you're just so focused on you know, what you're trying to do. Is the reverse true when there's nobody there? Or was it just such a surreal and overwhelmingly uh, obvious fact that there was nobody in the stadium that actually detracted from the, from the performance and detracted from the heights that sports stars can actually reach? Well, I think it was incredibly obvious that, um, you know, it was very different to anything we had experienced before. Um, and I, I suppose because it was new, it was always going to be something to get used to uh, in time. But I, but I think if that's going to be the, you know, saviour of, of sports, at least in the next wee period, and it's a chance to, you know, get sport back live on TV because, you know, I'm, I'm just like everyone else sitting at home watching sport and watching all these reruns that, that you know, Sky Sport back home in New Zealand is showing. Yeah, it's fantastic. But man, it'd be great to great to watch some live sport again. Um, but yeah, we, we went out in the middle. Uh, it was it was really empty. I remember, um, you know, obviously being on the boundary 
trying to support the bowler, you know, saying, come mate, you know, keep going for us, Lockie, or something like that. I remember saying that into the, into the stands and it echoed all around the ground um, <laughs> because it was obviously no one in the stands. So there's nowhere to hide uh, in that regard. But generally when you're performing a skill, you know, I think when you're batting or when you're bowling, apart from there being no noise, I think it's business as usual. Um, and I think if, if that's going to be the normality for the next wee period, I think people are going to start getting used to it and it's going to become easier and easier as we progress. But um, yeah, I, you know, I, I hope it doesn't last for too long if that's the case. Obviously health and safety come first, um, but, but it's, it's awesome being able to go out and playing in front of a crowd and, and everyone supporting the, the great game that we play in terms of cricket and obviously other sporting codes as well. But yeah, I really look forward to uh, one when sport starts again. I mean, obviously, if we can uh, manage to play in front of a crowd full of full of support, I think it'll be awesome. But uh, health and safety obviously come first. You know, it's such a such a unique uh, circumstance that we're in at the moment. So um, that's obviously the priority. And once that's over, I think uh, the great thing is going to be that we're going to appreciate sport a lot more than probably what we did in the past. And so. Uh, so that that can only be a good thing, um, but for now, I think the the better the best thing to do is to try to obviously beat this virus the best that will best way that we can for us. Average shows, I think that's pretty much staying at home and isolating. A huge thanks to Ish for taking the time out to talk to me, and you can hear more of his thoughts on what it's like to play in the Indian Premier League by listening to the Cricket Collective on TalkSport 2 between 6 and 7pm on Tuesday night. If you missed that, a podcast of the show will be made available in the next couple of days. Enjoy, and thanks for listening. The following on podcast is proudly sponsored by Barbados Tourism. And this is your gentle reminder that Barbados is the best place to be a cricket fan. With eight matches from the ICC Men's T20 Cricket World Cup Series taking place in Barbados this summer, including the final, you can experience the summer of a lifetime by booking today. Aside from immersing in world-class cricket in the sunshine, Barbados is the dream destination for all travel enthusiasts. It is where adventure meets paradise, the culinary capital of the Caribbean, and better still, the birthplace of rum. If you are keen to unite with cricket fans across the globe for what is set to be an unforgettable summer, then head to visitbarbados.org forward slash cricket today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 